A year on from the global recession, bankers are not only taking bonuses again, but some banks are reporting profits once more. Take the Standard Chartered Bank, which saw the seventh successive year of record income and profits in 2009. Pre-tax profits were $3.4 billion, up 13% from 2008. The bank's profits were fueled by strong performances in fast-growing economies such as China and India. And the company also confirmed that it's planning a stock listing in Mumbai in the first half of this year. Could it be that India's decade of innovation from 2010 to 2020 will encourage others to move to India too? Navi Raju is Executive Director of the Centre for India and Global Business at Cambridge Judge Business School. 2020 is indeed going to be an important milestone for India for many reasons. Uh, the primary reason is that India is now entering a phase of what we call hypergrowth which is similar to what China experienced in the late 90s. That means that after a lot of uh, fall starts, now it seems like India is entering, you can call it on cruise speed, uh, growth phase. And this growth phase is going to be probably lasting for the next few decades. So this is the first decade of a sustained growth that India is going to experience. And this growth, the question is, is it always going to be fueled? Is it going to be fueled like the China model uh, through brawn? like, you know, using low-cost manufacturing, or to brain, which is using, you know, scientific and technology capabilities. And our feeling is that the next decade in India, the growth of India in the next coming 10 years, will be powered by scientific and technological innovation. And therefore, it's going to be crucial for India to invest massively in innovation, whether it's a government investing in R&D labs or corporations investing in innovation, because innovation leads to growth, all economic theories, you know, confirm that. And therefore, the next decade for India will be very crucial because if these projections of growth were to bear, there needs to be innovation-led growth. And that means more investment in R&D and innovation. India has championed a particular type of innovation that comes from need, or, as the saying goes, necessity being the mother of invention. They've even thought up a term for it, Jagadi. Navi Raju again. Yes, uh, that's a great term. So Jugad is indeed the kind of innovation that takes place in India. And uh, Jugad essentially uh, is a gutsy kind of art um, of uh, creative improvisation that you see all across India. And essentially it's the ability to make the most of limited resources, to come up with frugal solutions that actually address a very specific socioeconomic need. And this kind of jugad you see across the board by entrepreneurs uh, in the streets who come up with creative ways to uh, sell products to the masses in India. But you also see jugad in play by co in corporations, like, for example, the Tata Group, which has come up with uh, this very clever car, the Nano, which is an embodiment of jugad because it, uh, it basically uses limited resources, limited raw materials, to produce a car which only cost $2,500, uh, but is available for the masses. So the Jugad essentially is the ability to do more for less for more. And far from being a brain drain, the Indian government is looking forward to its workers returning to India and developing its economy during this first decade of innovation. Local solutions to local problems is how growth in India is likely to be fueled. 
The rural economy will be central to this anticipated growth, as will investment in R&D by the multinationals. Navi Radju. Oh, and he has another of those phrases, polycentric innovation. India has not experienced the kind of phenomenal um, uh, rural kind of uh, exodus you have seen in China. And that's because a lot of innovations in India today are happening in the rural areas. And, for example, if you look at in the area of energy, for example, a lot of solar energy now is being distributed to rural people, right? If you look at, for example, technologies like uh, um, uh, in the retail business, a lot of the consumer uh, kind of um, uh, retailing is actually being extended to rural areas as well because rural areas, people think they are poor. They may be poor, but if you come up with the right business model to sell products that are affordable, to the people in the rural areas, they're willing to buy for it. As a matter of fact, if you go in many rural areas in India, you will still find, you know, TV, you might find a motorbike, you might find people using, you know, even a fridge. So rural India is developing as well. And I think rural India, where 70% of Indians live, in my opinion, is going to become the next big market, both for Indian companies, but also for multinationals. So it's not going to go as the China model is, with that great divide between the, the town and the country? Absolutely. Not only, I think, the divide, uh, I think, will uh, eventually you know, uh, evaporate, which is great. But more importantly, I think what we are going to see in India is that the kind of the tempo, so to speak, for innovation will be given by rural population, which is fascinating because typically we think that a lot of innovation comes from urban areas. But in India, my feeling is that a lot of the affordable and um, uh, frugal innovations are going to be designed with the rural masses in mind. And eventually, these innovations will find their way back into even cities and maybe possibly in other emerging markets and even in the West. Now, I know your prime minister has said that actually you need more private investment in the ecosystems of India. And of course, the global recession, India is being subject to it too. There's less money for R&D. Is attracting investment into India problematic? Uh, I think uh, actually it's, it's not entirely true. But if you look at the latest numbers, uh, I'm actually, uh, you know, I can go a single week without reading the news that uh, of all emerging markets, India is now emerging as one of the top uh, locations for attracting or the top markets, which is attracting foreign investments. The point I'm making is that actually it seems like there is a more funding available now than ever before in India. Is, is it leaving the West because of the recession and going into India? It's exactly right, because what's happening is that, you know, a lot of investors, because the fact is that if you look at it, right, there's a certain amount of capital available in the market, in the global marketplace at any point in time. But this capital typically chases the, you know, the greatest opportunities, right? It's like the meteor. It always goes where, you know, the next big opportunity is. And it seems today, to me at least, is that foreign investors have already pumped enough money into China and they invest in factories, etc. So I think that that investment story of China is almost like a, you know, a past chapter of this book of global capitalism. I think the next chapter, which is being written now, is going to be written with India as the main protagonist. Because I see more and more foreign investors investing in India because we have so many greenfield industries, right? If you look at retail sector, it's completely, you know, open because there are no organized retail, you know, chains yet. If you look at healthcare, we have such a paucity of, you know, clinics and hospitals. If you look at education sector, my gosh, we are just getting started by liberalizing it, right? So it means that you will see a lot of opportunities for innovation growth across all these sectors that are already relatively developed in China 
but are completely in its, you know, their infancy in, in India. If we then have a look at some of the success stories w- within India, and I know there was an article in the Financial Times uh, in January about that, but the General Electric, Cisco, Pepsi, Cola, those enlightened Western fir- firms who have embraced your concept, Navi, of polycentric innovation. What is it and why is it the way forward? It's a very interesting and important question. So polycentric innovation is the opposite of ethnocentric innovation. So if you look at companies like G, PepsiCo, and uh, Cisco, etc. Traditionally, what happened is that most of the innovation used to be done in the U.S. And the underlying premise for doing that was that, well, U.S. engineers were the smartest in the world because basically they know how to understand the U.S. market. Therefore, they were best positioned to develop the best products in the world. But what's happening now is that that's true, that may still be true, but what happens is that the fastest-growing markets now are not in the U.S. or Europe. They are now in India or China. Therefore, you need to basically have more R&D localized in countries like India so you can develop locally relevant products and services. So companies like G, Cisco, and uh, PepsiCo, they are now moving more R&D responsibilities into India. And they are not just developing Indian products for the Indian market anymore, but they are also delegating more management responsibilities to the Indian teams. So what that means is that they are, pre- they are creating new centers of excellence in India and China that will allow, for example, in the case of Cisco, to have a senior manager in sitting in Bangalore to call the shots as to what products and services will be rolled out globally. Right? So this kind of having global responsibilities located in a country like India, in an emerging market, is something that never happened before because most of the power used to reside in their quarters you know, in New York or in San Francisco or in London. But with polycentric innovation, companies like PepsiCo and Cisco, they are trying to essentially distribute and dilute uh, the decision-making power on a global scale. If Indian markets are going to be central to Western growth in the coming decade, so are those in China too. Two Cambridge Judge Business School senior academics started the year by debating the merits of both economies. In a remarkable exchange, Professor Peter Williamson in Beijing and Professor Jadeep Prabhu in Bangalore wrote emails to one another comparing the Chinese and Indian economies with the West's. Williamson says the West will become a museum of the 21st century, but innovation, says Prabhu, will benefit all. I think a lot of people underestimate the speed with which technology and innovation is moving in China and India. And if we don't adjust the way we think about innovation, the way we think about linking our innovation efforts with those in other countries, I think we will become a kind of uh, a Disneyland uh, that uh, people go and see uh, to look at what the technology was in the past. You said it's not a matter of catch-up, it's leapfrog. Again, a big adjective. Yes, well, I think if you look at uh, some industries in India and China, take the the green energy industry in China, take the drug development in India, which is used biotechnology probably more aggressively than in the West, or uh, even, and this will probably come as a surprise to you, the Internet in China is actually in many applications ahead of the West. So we shouldn't think it's just a matter of them catching up Uh, They have the ability to use the latest technology, don't have to go through the cycles that we went through. They can leapfrog directly to uh, the cutting edge or or even into the future. 
And, and so what examples have we got of, of where China in particular ha- has used innovation to, to leapfrog over the West? Well, you might have seen the electric car launched by uh, BYD in America recently. Uh, that has a range of 300 kilometers, and it can go from 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 14 seconds. That's using their proprietary battery technology that they developed to... Uh, use in things like mobile phones. And so uh, their idea is why try to compete with the West on the internal combustion engine? Why don't we leapfrog into electric cars? So, so that's one, uh, one interesting example. Well, let's just turn to you, Jadeep, uh, because I, I know that you disagree with Peter on the strength of the innovation drive in India and China. And, and the outcomes for the West. Why is that? Well, I, <clears throat> I agree with uh, Peter that there is significant innovation happening in China and India, and often it's not technological. And, of course, there are differences between China and India as well. Often it's the use of existing technology to meet existing needs that have been unmet, in a way, by uh, current products and services in a very affordable manner. I think that's the particular expertise that's that, that both multinationals and domestic companies are developing in the context of India and China that has the most implications, not only for those markets, but elsewhere. Where, I, where we perhaps disagree, or we agree to disagree, is on what the impact of that innovation will be on the West. And I tend to think that, I'm somewhat optimistic, that actually that will help the West and not threaten it. And in terms of, of helping the West, why? Is it the, the sort of research and, and development innovation drive that, that actually, if the West wants to compete in, it can benefit from? Absolutely. So one tangible way in which I believe that the innovation that's happening in India and China benefits the West is uh, through the the simple fact that many of the uh, much of the activity in India and China in the innovation space is led by Western multinationals. This is a way in which for them to get access to the large pool of talent that exists in these countries, um, which in the, in eventually finds its way back to Western consumers through new products and services, often at perhaps a reduced uh, cost to the Western consumer. So there is that big advantage to uh, the West. Um, I also think that, especially in this area of affordable innovation that both Peter and I have been talking about, um, the West can benefit. Um, Maybe not in the first instance, because in the first instance, these innovations are intended for the local markets in India and China, but they have a way of finding their way back to to the West. And Peter gives this example of uh, GE's innovation in the area of ECG machines. General Electric. Uh, General Electric's uh, ECG machine that was developed specifically for the Indian market, um, taking into account the fact that their existing machines were very large, immovable, and quite expensive, which limited their use to cities. And GE, General Electric, very quickly realized that if they were going to be useful to the Indian mass market, which is in the rural hinterland, they would have to make these compact, reliable, and cheap. So they made uh, such an ECG machine, which was a tenth of the cost of the existing ones and a fifth of the weight. It was successful in India, then in China, and now has FDA approval for introduction into the U.S. So I think that's another concrete way in which the West can benefit. But Williamson remains sceptical that the West will be able to exploit these markets. Well, I think it's good for some in those economies, and I completely agree with Jadip that... Uh, It's probably good for consumers. It's probably good for multinationals who are 
uh, tapping into the innovation and cost capabilities of these markets. But I'm not sure it's good for workers in the West because I think we have this uh, view that it's okay for India and China to do the low-end uh, basic kind of activities, but we're going to compete in the high end, and now we find that actually they're also able to compete strongly in innovation and high technology, uh, perhaps in a different way, and that's something we might come back to later as to how to actually get a benefit out of this. But I think in the first instance, it is a threat to highly paid, not to say expensive, workers in uh, Western markets. Mm -hmm.